How far would you go to find out the truth about something that you were so passionate about that it kept you up at night? Where would you draw the line? Maybe you'd stop after you spent some time doing a little bit of researching on Google or Reddit. Maybe you'd go a step further and take it to a trip to your local library, maybe. If you were truly tenacious, maybe you'd find someone involved and ask for a little bit of your time. Now we're starting to get into maybe a little bit of an obsessive territory. I can see each step past this encroaching more and more into a legal gray area. In 2002, a British systems administrator reached a point very few of us have in his search for the truth about UFOs and other major secrets. He was on the hunt for information about free energy, alien life, and more, all in the pursuit of the public's right to information, and for his own curiosity, of course, too. Well, this man's search took him far over the legal line, and he would end up inside computer systems for agencies like NASA and the US military. But who was this champion for knowledge? Well, some of you listening might have already picked up on it, but today we're taking a trip back to the early 2000s and late 90s. I'm John Cordes, and I'd like to invite you to join me while I ask the question, who the shell is Gary McKinnon? What I'm about to talk to you about before the show starts up is not an ad. And no, no one is paying me to say this. I scripted this out from scratch myself. I want to give several of you the opportunity to learn hands-on what it takes to do some of the stuff that we've talked about in this show, even potentially doing some of what we talk about today, but in a closed environment. I'm giving away several six-month vouchers to a platform called TryHackMe. TryHackMe is an educational website where you can learn skills and test them straight in a lab environment, and it's something that I use frequently. If you're on our show's Discord, you know that in our CTF talk group, we post our streaks to keep each other accountable and learning each and every day and ask questions when we need to. So what's the catch? Well, I'm asking that you join our Discord and participate a bit in our community over there. There will be a link in the description of the episode for you to use. You can just click that and it will automatically open the app for you. And once you've done that, tag the show on Instagram or Twitter with your favorite episode. Then just let me know in the giveaway channel on the Discord and you'll be entered. The winners will be announced in episode 33. And just so you know, it's not just a Try Hack Me sticker or a Try Hack Me voucher that you could win. The first winner will be given a voucher and any t-shirt from a show that they want. The second will receive a voucher and one of each show's sticker. And the third winner will just receive the voucher. So if you could show the community some love and participate in this, I'd love to see it. All right, how about we get started? As we go into the episode, I want to let you know that this is going to be just a tad different from some of our other episodes. It's going to be a little bit more on the editorial side of things, in that there isn't a whole lot of meat to the actual hacking portion of this, but there's still quite a lot to talk about in a really interesting story that I wanted to share with you all. Let's take it all the way back to the beginning here. Gary McKinnon was born on February 10th, 1965. So at the time of this episode's release, that puts him at about 58 years old. He was born in Glasgow, but in his early years after his mother and father separated, he and his mom would find their way to a life in North London. As he grew up, Gary's story seems to mirror that of many a young hacker in those days. Gifted a computer in his early teens, he quickly took to some of the concepts around computers and really had an interest in it. 
many of the people around him referred to him as a regular computer whiz. And as he started socializing online, he ended up taking up the virtual moniker, Solo. Those first few years, he'd be ingraining himself in the concepts of computer technology. But it seems like a lot of younger kids, he still wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do with his life. I know at that time, I probably wouldn't have been sure either. I think at that point in my life, I wanted to be an animator or a cartoonist. In his mid-teens, McKinnon has stated in interviews that he was an avid reader, and he'd really like to chow down on books relating to science fiction, with some even surrounding conspiracy theories. It seemed to mesh really well with his love of technology. I mean, at this point, he started teaching himself how to code and has a nice set of hobbies, but life would still prove to be a little bit challenging for him. One of the benefits of telling stories like this in hindsight is that I can give you context to things without waiting in real time. So with the years of backlogged interviews and information that's come out about him, I can tell you that one of the challenges that Gary faced was an undiagnosed Asperger syndrome. And for anyone that's uncertain, that's a condition on the autism spectrum, wherein with some, it can be difficult to understand social cues. And this can show itself heavily as social situations are entered. Gary has talked pretty openly about this, and he said that he struggled to connect with his peers when he was younger, that he often felt like an outsider. Flashing forward a few years, at 17, he'd leave school, not in pursuit of computer science or hacking, but to become a hairdresser. I know at this point you might be listening to this and thinking, what the hell is John talking about? Why are we talking about a hairdresser? Well, don't fret, because this was just a momentary stop on the train in Gary's life. Yeah, it would seem that the hairdressing life didn't quite mesh with Gary, and after some time and serious talks with the friends he did have, he would return and showcase his desire for more by getting a qualification in computer science and beginning to work in the field that he'd started to develop a bit of a passion for. Once that portion of his life was pretty much past him, Gary took up his time as a systems administrator. In the late 90s and early 2000s, a sysadmin, as they're pretty frequently called, was more of a catch-all term than it is right now. Responsibilities could have ranged anywhere from performing help desk-like functions all the way up to deploying server infrastructure, depending on where you were employed. The field wasn't as split or specialized as it is right now. And I've been setting the stage for you. You have someone that's been a bit of an outsider who has struggled to find their place in the world with what they want to do. Gary is making his way into the corporate world and slowly but surely trying to acclimate to life in that environment. And eventually he'd end up quitting his job because he had issues working in the corporate lifestyle. It didn't really work for him. All the while, as Gary was experiencing this firsthand, he continued to stay interested in sci-fi stories and conspiracy theories. And at this point, he's been involved in a group called Bufora. That's B-U-F-O-R-A for several years at this point. It stands for the British UFO Research Association. According to themselves, this is a nationwide network of, at that point, 300 people that were dedicated to the wide-range truth of UFOs. So Gary, entrenched in the works of authors like Asimov and Heinlein, has been taking this love and starting to question the enormity of the world that we live in by way of asking about alien life and not so much what truth is out there as what truth is being withheld from us. When a reporter confronted him about this, asking if he was beginning to believe in UFOs at that point, he would respond to the question, quote, not to believe, but to hope 
that there might be something more advanced than us, keeping a friendly eye on us. Hopefully, a friendly eye. And at that point, if you're listening and reading like I am about this, it seems like an earnest interest. He's not really being harmful with anything in regards to asking these questions. He's just participating in the community and trying to expand his horizons. But then, and this is a little bit of a weird one for me, after watching the movie War Games, a question popped into his head. He thought to himself, can you really do it? Can you really gain unauthorized access to an incredibly interesting place? Surely it can't be that easy. He'd started trying to be more actively involved in the hunt for answers. But could this be it? Was this his way to get the answers to the questions that were keeping him up at night? He seemed to think so because eventually in the mid-90s, he'd decide it was worth the risk. He began to explore his options and he was able to find a tool that would search for computers, fingerprint their operating systems as Windows, and then look for admin accounts with no passwords. How often on this show is password security the cause for every single issue that ends up ruining something? We talk about reused passwords, we talk about passwords that were involved in breaches, and now in this case, we're talking about people setting up administrator accounts, just with no password. All you'd have to do is type in admin enter, and I want to stop there and close your jaw if you're as caught off by this as you should be. At that time, in the late 90s and early 2000s, password security wasn't anywhere near what it is right now. So you had people who were either lazy or willfully ignorant setting the administrator accounts to not have a password at all because it was the path of least resistance, to hell with any of the consequences. What Gary is doing here is just some kind of brute force attack, relatively simple, in that it's probably trying a small amount of usernames like admin, administrator, root, and just moving on if nothing comes of use. What he was looking for, and what he would eventually be able to find, by the way of a boatload of systems were US government or military affiliated companies that met that criteria. For better or worse, these machines would have an easy way in. It's like if you're walking by a house and the door is just wide open and every window is wide open. That's the scenario that he's found himself in on the internet. When he talks about it, McKinnon said that it only got more exciting for him when he started to get access to places like US Space Command. So he'd keep a log of all the places that met that criteria of systems he could use, he'd test access, keep a bit of a vigilant eye for new systems that he could look at as well, and really just start pillaging for information. His strategy was pretty simple too. He'd take the open door and start looking around. He'd use whatever intel he had to make sure that he could do things like hop from one secure network to another network. He's explicitly called out that he'd do things like start in a support network segment and then move his way over to logistics since support had access to that network segment as well. Then he'd see what he could find after that. He's pivoting across a network performing lateral movement to find new and exciting loot to add to his findings. He could do that until either he hit a dead end or found something that looked juicy. He'd find something that looked a little bit like it was secret and catalog it. So he does this for seven years or so. And now we get into the meat of our story, because in 2002, McKinnon would allegedly gain access to not just one, but many US government, military, and military contractor systems. These would include organizations like NASA, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Department of Defense, and companies like Boeing or Lockheed Martin. 
This is when the US government was able to start tying these things back to him, specifically. So you'd see that same year that Gary was indicted by a federal grand jury on a couple different charges, ranging from computer fraud, unauthorized access to government computers, and hacking. It was a bit of an a la carte charging menu from the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. But if you remember back to the very first episodes of the show, Kevin Mitnick faced very similar charges and did not make out very well. It's been speculated that similar to how Mitnick was an example being set in the United States, McKinnon served a similar purpose to the international community. Because to face charges, he'd either need to show up willingly or face some level of extradition, and the US and UK did have an extradition treaty. What adds a little bit of weight to the idea that he was going to be made an example of was that Gary noticed something pretty crazy when he was on these systems and has talked pretty openly about it. He'd spend night after night on these machines, and while he wasn't the hacker genius everyone's labeled him as, he knew his way around. So he'd run a command like netstat, which is very simple, and list all the connections on that machines and see what connections were coming into it. What he found was connections stemming from Germany, Turkey, Thailand, and other countries. It dawned on him. He wasn't the only one here in the system. He wasn't the only hacker present. But what he might have been was the only one there that was easily locatable. And now you might be wondering, even still, why are we going after him? What systems and what data did he actually get into? And what did he find? I think it's crucial to step back and understand his motives here. We know he's into UFOs and a little bit into conspiracy theories as well. So what we know is that his motivations here might not be singular. And that's exactly the case. He's talked about how he believed he'd not only find evidence of UFOs, but information on what he believes were things being covered up, things like clean energy being pushed under the rug, or more information on what really happened on 9-11. Because again, it's 2002, we're just after the September 11th terrorist attacks. And we're starting to get to the point where people are asking questions about government wrongdoings involving the attack, or if there even were cover-ups involved. <laughs> I remember this time very well. For me, it was one of the first experiences I had with a conspiracy theory unfolding in real time. Sure, we all joked about the moon landing being fake growing up, but this was different. There was a huge culture around the idea that there were major cover-ups involving that day. Some people raised, I think, fair questions, but it quickly grew and spread into more and more outlandish claims. And as you know it now, it's, for better or worse, effectively a cliché. So when you've got this guy, Gary McKinnon, in 2002, and he's on systems that could have information, he's of course going to try to find what he can. So Gary's looking. And what does he find? Unsurprisingly, not too much on 9-11 or anything like that, but he does allegedly find quite a bit to tick off his UFO checklist. Here's a list of findings that I've put together from some of his various interviews that he's allegedly seen on government systems. Proof of aliens visiting Earth. Studies on objects that we don't understand flying in the sky. Evidence of entire military departments and organizations that study those objects, images and videos of actual UFOs, and I've got on the website an artist rendering of one of the images that Gary claims to have seen. You can see it at whattheshellpod.com in the episode transcript. I'll also post it to Instagram. 
what's more interesting to him is that there are folders labeled filtered, unfiltered, raw, and processed. That little bit lends some credit to a belief that he was given by a former NASA astronaut that he also believed, which was that NASA was scrubbing its photos before granting access to the community. And the last thing I'll put of note here is that he allegedly found a list of officers' names under a document heading of, quote, non-terrestrial officers. I was going to paraphrase what Gary said in an interview about this, but I think the actual transcript is a better choice. So here it is. Quote, I found a list of officers' names, he said, under the heading non-terrestrial officers. Non-terrestrial officers, the reporter replies. Yeah, I've looked it up and it's nowhere. It doesn't mean little green men. What I think it means is not Earth-based. I found a list of fleet-to-fleet transfers and a list of ship names, and I looked them up and they weren't U.S. Navy ships. What I saw made me believe that they were some kind of spaceship, off-planet. The reporter then asks, the Americans have a secret spaceship. That's what this evidence has led me to believe, Gary would reply. What were the ship names? I can't remember, says Gary. I was smoking a lot of dope at the time. Not good for your intellect. So I'm going to put on two hats right now. It's back to John. I'm going to put on my skeptic hat and my veteran hat. First and foremost, I don't like that this is coming from someone who is admitting from using a potential mind-altering amount of drugs. If you want to smoke, that's fine by me. I don't care about that. But he basically said in that last line that it's possible the amount he was smoking was not good for remembering things like this. Second, after being a part of government and military, I can tell you that I think he was right on his first assumption, that non-terrestrial is probably to be taken in its most literal meaning, not on Earth. So that could be either officers in planes that are in the sky for extended periods, or ships at sea. Hell, maybe even the ISS. But he's pretty adamant that there were ships out there in space, so I'm going to ask the tech question that's on my mind. Like me, you might be wondering why he didn't download the videos and pictures. The easiest answer here that you might be thinking of is the right one. His connection was too slow. He'd periodically get a reset connection to the devices that he was on, and at just about 56 kilobytes a second, that meant that this stuff might as well not exist to him in any real capacity because he wasn't getting a complete transfer. But I'll admit, it's hard not to get inquisitive and curious when things like this are mentioned. It's easy to want to believe in something bigger and everything that he's saying here. But like it or not, even with the best of intentions, he's crossed the legal line by a long shot. And now he's having to deal with the consequences. So if you remember, we're in 2002 and he's been indicted by a grand jury. And I know a lot of my listeners are outside of the United States. So if you don't know what a grand jury is, it's a group of citizens who are selected to determine whether there is enough evidence to indict a person and bring them to trial. The grand jury proceedings are conducted in secret, and the jurors hear evidence presented by the prosecutor to determine whether a person should be charged with a crime. It's before the trial even happens. And the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that they're pulling these charges from is a U.S. federal law that criminalizes various computer-based activities. The activities include accessing a computer without authorization, or in excess of authorization, 
damaging or altering computer systems and using a computer to commit fraud or obtain sensitive information. Seems like a lot of what's happening right here. Maybe not the destruction, but most of everything else. Gary McKinnon was charged with several offenses under a CFAA related to his alleged hacking. And like I said, the charges included accessing U.S. government computers without authorization, stealing and destroying files, and causing damage to computer systems. He was also accused of leaving threatening messages on the U.S. government's computer systems, although I haven't been able to find any proof of that. The U.S. government alleged that McKinnon's actions caused significant harm to national security and resulted in substantial financial losses. And I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that they said it resulted in substantial financial losses. The charges against McKinnon carried the possibility of significant prison time and fines. I believe they were looking to try to get him with about 70 years at this point, which is absolutely insane to me. They were really stepping it up for him specifically, but we're still faced with this problem. McKinnon isn't in the United States. So the U.S. government in 2005 formally requested that McKinnon be extradited from the U.K. to face charges. Now, this is a slow process. After all, it took from 2002 to 2005 to get that extradition request done. And in 2006, Gary is still fighting it, or rather, he started fighting it. It didn't instantly happen. He had time to get things started and go on a defense. Ultimately, the defense would need to be prepared on multiple fronts because... In 2008, the UK joined in and charged him with several offenses of the same nature relating to the Computer Misuse Act of 1990, Britain's version of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Gary is still up to his head in legal action at this point, but it's not without being noticed. His story was getting a lot of public attention, but not for a reason you might think. As McKinnon continued to fight extradition to the U.S., he argued that he could face a lengthy prison sentence and potentially harsh treatment due to his Asperger's syndrome and other mental health problems that he's concerned with. He also argued that the extradition treaty between the United States and the United Kingdom was unbalanced and did not provide sufficient protection for U.K. citizens. The case started to shine a light on some of the unfair treatment of those with mental health problems in the justice system, and many people rallied around that. There were fundraisers, news shows, and even more dedicated just to this. What's kind of surprising about all this to me is that it worked. Several years later, the extradition process and the charges were dropped entirely. There were a couple key factors that contributed to the decision to drop the extradition proceedings against him. One was the significant public and political pressure that we were talking about brought to bear on this case, with many people arguing that because the extradition treaty between the United States and UK was such crap, that it needed to be reevaluated. Another factor was that concern about the mental health and the harm that extradition could cause to his well-being. And honestly, I like to see that. I like to see that that's being considered here. It's something that I'm very much for. Several high-profile figures, including Sting and, you know, high-profile Boris Johnson, spoke out in support of McKinnon and called for the extradition proceedings to be dropped. It was. It was all over for him, at least in the way of not having to go to jail or trial. But he started speaking publicly about it because one of the things that we all found was that there was some ways in which the treaty was very sketchy, to say the least. Example number one. To be extradited back then, it was $5,000 worth of damages would need to have been done. A curious thing about that amount of damage, 
because that's what was listed as seemingly how much damage he did exactly. $5,000. Now remember back to what I said earlier, how the US claimed he did extraordinary damage? I don't consider $5,000 extraordinary amounts of damage, so I'm kind of left wondering which is it. Did he do a lot of damage, or did he do $5,000 worth of damage? I mean, it's certainly possible that that was the exact amount, but it's curious that this is where they settled it. The treaty was rather old at that point, so it didn't really have a great metric on computer damage. It seemed like this was just a catch-all way to get him sent over. But even when probed, the Crown process wasn't given any real evidence for why he needed to be handed over. The Crown initially came to his defenses, saying that this was all hearsay. And honestly, you can see that while maybe not a conspiracy theorist being targeted for his views, this was a case of don't mess with the US government, especially after 9-11. Personally, in my research and my reading on this, it sounded like they were more concerned that this was going to be commonplace after 9-11. That terrorist attacks, cyber attacks were going to increase, and they wanted to make sure that the world knew this is not going to be fine. Cut to me talking about the hundreds of times since then the US government has been hacked, but okay. So I'm just sitting here at the end of a story. Gary has been a strong vocal champion for the rights of ethical trials, and with stories around UFOs. He's got a lot of interesting interviews online that I suggest listening to, but ultimately this wasn't a super hacking heavy episode, so why did I make it? What I wanted to deliver you all was a story of how easy it is to go off the rails with hacking. Because logically what happened here was someone was passionate about something and they kept pursuing learning about it. Eventually, that led them to an easily accessible tool that was able to be used to scan for credentials. That person might not really know the full ins and outs of the consequences that using this information could incur, but it gets him what he wants. And while yes, this is a full-grown adult here, today the game is different. It goes back to the interview I did with Jack from Darknet Diaries a while back. We talked pretty heavily about kids not knowing where the line is with this stuff. But here we are, giving them lots of free reign to tools that could get them in so many different places and in so many different kinds of trouble. Hell, right now, if a kid really wanted to, they could start a spear phishing campaign with an active exploit with moderate success. Today, there are vulnerabilities and proof of concept code out there that would make this likely some level of successful. It's easy to see how someone could just get so into what they're doing that before they realize it, they're over the legal line. And it's because they had such easy access to get there. It's like someone chauffeured them right across the line and made it comfortable every step along the way. A simple brute forcing attack is all it took for Gary. And for kids, they have access to that. They also have access to a lot of free denial of service tools and exploit packages that are all available. So where is the line here? Let me know what you think, because I really want to hear it. Come to the episode discussion and tell me. And that's it for Gary and this story, but that's definitely not it for the episode. I've got one new thing that I want to try. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Whoever is listening up to this point, you're the audience. I want to be engaging for you. On the show's Discord a while back, I took some ideas for quick discussion prompts. Just a little thing that I could tack on on the end of every episode where you can see what my opinion is on something, and more importantly, in the Discord server, after the episode, we can talk about it and have a little bit of discourse, because I don't expect it to line up all the time. The very first suggestion comes from at 
actual pseudo Shia LaBeouf. He asked me this, do you think it's okay to hack back a hacker? And I almost didn't want to do this one, because I don't want to endorse hacking back in any capacity. It's a boring corporate answer, but no, I really don't think it's a good idea. You see a lot of success stories of people going after scam centers and hacking them back, protecting people from being scammed again. People purposely playing along to bait a connection they can use against someone else. But these are professionals and people who fully understand the risk that they're taking on. Sometimes even making sure the proper authorities are involved before they do so. I ask this, what do you as an individual stand to gain from going after someone who went after you? You could maybe feel a little bit better that you made them go through some pain too, but you also risk being a continued target. Maybe them upping the ante a bit and coming back after you if they can narrow down that you're the one who did it. I think I've stressed it enough, but in today's world, the right tools to do a lot of damage online are too easy to find. So in my opinion, you need to treat this like you can't restore from a backup post ransomware and just start over. Let it be, move on, and be better next time. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have some ideas about why that's not always a good case or why you should hack back. And you know what? I want to hear it. So get into the episode discussion on the Discord and let me know. Is it okay? I'm John Cordes, and that's it for me explaining who Vichelle Gary McKinnon is and what he went through. Don't forget, that giveaway is still going strong, so enter it. And if you want to support the show by some other fashion, you can always go to store.whatvichellepod.com and check out what we've got there. I recently put up some new stickers and shirts, including one where I'm donating half of the proceeds to a good cause. The Trevor Project. If that's not up your alley, there's always Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash Get bonus content, request a mini-episode, or just add a little Discord flair to your profile, depending on how much you want to support. And while all that really does help the show, honestly, just spreading it by word of mouth is enough for me. I'm happy that I'm making something that got you listening up until this point, so share it with others if you think that that's something that they'd listen to, too. Thanks to my patrons that are supporting the show still, you guys are the champions to me. So, Kilby, Jay, Frank Aponte, both Johns with and without an H, Adon, Christian, Ben M, Ben Sweetnam, Tyus Ashworth, Chris Finnick, Fer, Sudo, and the Myth, the Legend, the Mr. I use Pot of Greed to draw three additional cards from my deck. Thank you. Thank you all. I truly, truly appreciate each and every one of you. I'll see you all in two weeks for another episode.